0: Nick Sawyer and welcome to The Swap Podcast, where we exchange news and views on the latest trends in derivatives and finance. Let me start with a statistic. About 16% of adult Americans, roughly 40 million people, have invested in or used cryptocurrencies. That figure was taken from a fact sheet accompanying a recent executive order signed by President Biden on digital assets, it's a big number and one that, frankly, surprised me, but it goes some way to explaining why the executive order was published. Recognising the rapid growth of this market, the executive order calls for US government agencies to coordinate on identifying and addressing possible risks, as well as harnessing the potential benefits of digital assets. That work, which includes tackling consumer and investment protection issues, financial risks and illicit financing activity, will add to the already busy intray of the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, one of the agencies charged with this work. But it's by no means the only big-ticket item the CFTC is focused on. There's also climate risk and sustainable finance. The CFTC's Market Risk Advisory Committee set out its stall on this in September 2020 with the publication of a report on managing climate risk in the US financial system, which makes a number of recommendations, including the need to establish a price on carbon. Last year, the CFTC also set up a climate risk unit to lead its engagement on this issue. Other topics on the agenda include a possible modification of established US clearing models, continuing work to transition from US dollar LIBOR, forthcoming changes to swap data reporting rules, and of course, monitoring the impact from the Russia sanctions. Joining me is ISDA CEO Scott O'Malia. And Scott, we're going to be talking about all of these issues today. Yes, we are, and we're
1: fortunate to be discussing them with CFTC Chairman Rostin Benham. Russ was sworn in as the CFTC chair at the start of this year, having been in the acting chair role since January of 2021. Before joining the CFTC as a commissioner in 2017, Russ worked in the U.S. Senate as senior counsel to Senator Debbie Stabenow. He also worked as a proprietary equities trader and a lawyer. It's going to be a fascinating discussion, and I'm looking forward to talking to him about his priorities at the CFTC. Well, there's
0: an awful lot to discuss, so let's get straight to it.
1: Russ, it's great to speak with you again. Thank you very much for joining us. Scott, it's great to be with you. Thanks. Well, let's start with crypto assets. President Biden recently signed an executive order outlining a cross-agency approach on the development of digital assets. The order highlights several key priorities, including customer and investor protection, as well as identifying and mitigating potential financial stability risks. But it also recognizes the benefits Of crypto assets and highlights the opportunity for the U.S. to play a leading role in this space. What role will the CFTC play in implementing this order, and what will your first steps be?
2: First off, I'm just really excited that President Biden has moved forward with this initiative. Credit to him and his team for putting the executive order out. I think it's very exciting, and a lot of folks across the U.S. government, including in Congress, are really looking forward to what we can put together. Just as a general matter, The order calls for a report in the next six months, so we'll probably be looking for something in the fall, maybe September or October. From a CFTC perspective, I think we have a really unique lens with which to view crypto assets. As you know, and I'm sure many of your listeners know, we've been overseeing regulated futures on Bitcoin and Ether for a number of years going back to 2017. So we have a sense of how the markets function. We have relationships with market participants. And I'm just really looking forward to bringing that knowledge and expertise to the table and sharing with my colleagues across the U.S. government and the White House what we've learned, what we've seen, and how we could really just add value to the larger conversation about where we see digital assets going in the future and what we need to do from a policy perspective to reach those goals, which you shared, right? It's customer protections, it's financial stability, it's resiliency in the markets and developing the technology where we see benefits, Another point that I think we're going to be really helpful on is enforcement and rooting out fraud manipulation and bad actors. We bought about, I think literally on the number 50 enforcement cases going back to 2015. So seven years, just to give you a sense of how long the CFTC has interacted with this digital asset space and those market participants. Again, another lens with which we have experience and expertise, to see what's going on in the market and to protect customers and to build that market resiliency, which is really important.
1: Do you think the current U.S. regulatory framework is adequate for digital assets? And if not, where are the gaps and what needs to change? And and particularly, does Congress have a role here? So in many respects... The current law provides a bit of flexibility
2: for regulators to move a little bit around digital assets and the technology and some of the novel issues. But I would emphasize it's pretty limited, right? So I think in some respects as this technology dating back 12, 13 years at this point, obviously slow start. But in the past three to five years, we've really seen the scaling and a broader use across customers. And financial institutions. I'll speak from a CFTC perspective. You know, I I mentioned the futures contracts. Obviously, we're having a lot of retail exposure, a lot of institutional exposure. Our existing rules have allowed us to allow those products to be listed and to give us the authority to oversee those products, working with exchanges and clearinghouses, and do what we think is right, tailored to these particular products and the risk profile they have relative to other futures contracts and other commodities. And I think that's been helpful. I think that's been innovative, and it's allowed the market to develop, and it's allowed the CFTC to have a role in the development and advancement of the technology. Now, that's sort of on the positive side. On the negative side, or at least... The less useful side, to sort of use that phrase, this technology is so novel. It raises so many legal questions, operational questions, resiliency questions, cyber issues, that the law, in my view, and to address your point about Congress, there really is a role for Congress here. And that's, I think, a lot of the conversations that have been going on in Washington right now is... Where do we see this technology going in the short term and in the long term, and what statutory authorities do financial regulators need? You can imagine from a prudential standpoint, you obviously have payments issues, settlement issues, custody issues. We naturally have those issues as well, but to focus on what we do, and this is Securities and Exchange Commission as well, as market regulators, we need to really flush out Core questions. What's a security? What's a commodity? How does it fit within existing definitions? Do we want to redefine them? How would jurisdiction be potentially split, obviously, in the cash market versus the derivatives market? And these are the questions and the issues that we're struggling with, that we could certainly use a bit of a steer from Congress, but also new authority, because You know, from my view, this technology is certainly not going away. We've only seen it grow in size and scope in the past few years. Whether or not that scale will continue at this clip remains to be seen. But I've said this in the past, you know, as a regulator, as chairman of the CFTC, I have to build in scenarios of what I think may happen in markets. And I think we have to consider and contemplate scaling of this space to continue at its current clip and what does that mean for resiliency issues, what does that mean for financial stability issues and how we have to interact with the market and what authority we need to protect customers and to do what our mission and responsibility is as a financial regulator.
1: Now, I had a conversation with Mark Weijin a couple podcasts ago, and he said the learning curve with Congress is progressing, but it's still slow and there's no real consensus yet. All of this is going you know, congressional action that you talked about or the steer that you're going to need, they're going to have to get on with it, right? Because the market isn't stopping. It's growing. It's evolving. We're looking at institutional investors and growing and expanding into derivatives now from the spot market. So all of this is real time. Congress is going to have to get a little more involved, don't you think? A hundred
2: percent. And, you know, I agree with Mark because I know he's been doing a bit of work himself, but, you know, from my perspective, I've been engaging with members on both sides of the Capitol. I've had several hearings at this point specifically about this issue. And yeah, I mean, things don't move as quickly as we would like to. But if I take a step back and go back to my first days as a commissioner in 2017 to where we are now, the evolution has been significant. And I think in in a DC timeline, we should be pleased about what we're seeing. We need to encourage more education, engagement, and hopefully action. I always caution against moving too quickly. There are pros and cons to both, obviously. We need to keep up with the market. We need to observe what's going on in the marketplace. From a U.S. perspective, we want to make sure that we keep that technology and that innovation within the U.S., but also we have to be thoughtful and deliberative about it. The complexity of the issues that we're dealing with and how they differ from the issues that we do traditionally deal with from a traditional financial markets perspective are challenging. And we have to get the right people around the table. And that's why, going back to your original question about the president's EO, another great step in moving the conversation forward to leverage the administration's expertise and engagement with Congress's effort and just continue advocating and pushing for action. And I'm hopeful. What I've observed, which is pretty unique and what we can view as pretty partisan days there's a lot of consensus around these issues in the sense of we want to support customer protections and support the market, but we also need to come up with a regulatory structure that allows, to your point, Scott, institutional engagement and more capital allocation from institutional investors. So strange bedfellows may be coming together that you would otherwise not think have in the past or just haven't in the past. And I think that's what this particular issue might allow us to do. And again, I'll keep doing my job and hoping for the best and hoping for sooner execution rather than later, but remains to be seen.
1: Well, in doing your job, the CFTC recently published a request for comment following an application from the crypto firm FTX to permit it to clear non-intermediated margined products. This would represent a change to establish clearing models in some respects. Why is this change being considered now, and what are the implications of all of this? You kind of pointed this out in the question. As chairman of the agency, I view
2: this engagement as my responsibility. And it's one of my more important responsibilities is to treat market participants, stakeholders, fairly, equitably, and in a timely manner as well. And in this particular case, as, as you mentioned, FTX which recently, or at least you know, a bit ago, purchased LedgerX, which was a licensed DCO, a clearing organization, and a DCM, a contract market, and has requested an amendment to their existing clearing order. And as we would with any registrant or any stakeholder, we're, we're going through the request, we're doing our due diligence, we're doing our math, and seeing what they're proposing and seeing if it fits within our regulatory structure and, and what potential risks it may create what opportunities it might create. And in the context of the RFI that we put out just a few weeks ago, you're right. I mean, this is a departure from an established clearing model. I don't take that lightly, and I understand and appreciate the significance of that. And because of that, I made a decision that we need to have an RFI, and as a first step of several to engage with stakeholders across the board, both market participants academics, public interest groups and just hear from folks about what they think, what they're seeing, what their issues are, what they think are benefits potentially of the proposal. And as we take those in over the next couple months, continue to have dialogue and engagement given the nature of this request and hopefully make a better and more informed decision off of that. And I I don't think that's a novel approach per se from a process standpoint. But it's an extremely important one, especially with issues that are as significant as this one. So we'll continue to be deliberative, we'll continue to be patient, and as chairman, I understand the importance of it, but just making sure everyone's playing from the same playing field, so to speak, getting treated fairly and equitably, and just doing what I view as one of my most important jobs and responsibilities as chair.
1: Well, thank you. I think everybody's gonna be watching this pretty closely and interested to see how it develops because it's not so much the indirect clearing model so much as you know, it's the technology offering as well. And when you read the order and think about it, you know, there's some new technology in the way customer protection is treated. So I think we're all watching it very closely. Scott, I would add before we move on, it's you're right, because
2: there are so many issues that we have to examine and dissect. But just because it's a new model doesn't necessarily prohibit, from a regulatory perspective, the CFDC from accomplishing those outcomes that we seek to accomplish, right? And that's, to your point, customer protection, that's market resiliency, that's financial stability. And within the context of a principles based regulatory structure, if we can accomplish those outcomes, maybe with different inputs and ingredients, I think. That really is what our goal is. So we're going to prioritize, certainly under my direction, customer protections. That's our number one job, and I take that very seriously. We're going to emphasize these things, be patient, be deliberative, and make sure we can accomplish those same outcomes that we expect from our registrants across the board.
1: Do you have any timeline that people can expect for this? I don't because... We're not going to give
2: ourselves a timeline. From the one hand, what we're going to do is engage and do our job and move this forward, but we're not going to rush it. We're going to do everything we need to do to ensure that we feel comfortable with whatever decision we make in the end.
1: As well as digital assets, another focus of this administration and your chairmanship has been climate change. Back in September of 2020, the Climate-Related Market Risk Subcommittee, the Market Risk Advisory Committee, the MRAC, which you sponsor, published a report managing climate risk in the U.S. financial system. It includes multiple recommendations, including the need to establish a price on carbon and a call for federal financial agencies to incorporate climate-related risks into their mandate. What progress has been made since that report was published, and what role will the CFTC play in encouraging the shift to a greener economy? I've been really pleased
2: to see a lot of action out of the Biden administration, as you point out, this is a priority for President Biden. He often says this is an all-of-government approach to climate change. And from a financial regulatory perspective, as you point out, you know, very proud of that September 2020 report, very inclusive in the sense of thinking what financial markets can do, what the risks are, what the opportunities are to climate change, and how we collectively as a financial market and financial community can address these issues. A few of the priorities have been addressed. One, NGFS, the network for greening the financial system, the you know, Federal Reserve has joined it among other US regulators as well. The SEC recently released a proposal on disclosures for public reporting companies, and any number of other regulators are starting to really put their heads together and seeing what they can do to build more resilience in the system. I know the Fed under Chair Powell is also looking at climate scenarios for financial institutions. So no predetermined conclusions on these a lot just in the works, but all of these initiatives and projects, so to speak, were outlined in the report. From my perspective, when I started thinking about what I could do within the MRAC to highlight some of the climate-related financial market risks, to see these recommendations put into action is really satisfying for me. From a CFTC perspective, we've started to put our heads together. One of the first actions I took as acting chair back in, in 2021 was to, to form the Climate Risk Unit, which is a group of market analysts and economists and surveillance specialists within the agency to start thinking about what we can do within the CFTC to support an orderly transition to a net zero economy, but also blunt the impacts of the physical risks that climate change poses. And in many respects, this is what our markets do and have been doing for decades, quite frankly. So it's really leveraging that expertise and that experience from a risk management standpoint to see how we can collectively as an industry introduce new products, think about new innovative ideas so that manufacturers farmers, ranchers, and every commercial end user can start to manage some of these climate-related risks. Kudos to Isda. I know you've been a leader in the space on seeing how derivatives can play an integral role in both managing physical risk, but also transition
1: risk. Well, I think it's important to our membership. We've both been in policy for a very long time. I don't think I've ever seen the private sector, buy-side, sell-side commercial, so focused on kind of net zero strategies. Hundreds of firms have signed up to net zero strategies. I think I saw a number of up to 700 publicly traded firms and have signed up for these things and we want to make sure that whether they use voluntary carbon markets or other sustainability linked routes that they've got firm ground in which to make those decisions. And now I personally think voluntary carbon markets can be very useful in helping boost the investment in nature-based and technology-based projects that will sequester or minimize carbon emissions. One area I think we need to watch for is greenwashing. I think that could be the death knell for a good voluntary carbon market if there's abuse in this area. Now, given that there are a large number of futures contracts on voluntary carbon credits, which are made up of aggregated spot carbon credits that can be delivered as part of the futures contract, what legal authority and oversight does the CFTC have over the spot market? And how will you apply these authorities to address the important question of greenwashing? I'm really excited
2: about this particular space because, as we pointed out, the main issues from a financial regulatory perspective around climate change really focus on disclosures, focus on stress testing for certain institutions, focus on comparable, clean data that folks can see and identify and assess. But the voluntary carbon market space becomes a really interesting challenge, right? It's a critical component of transition risk and making sure that we get to net zero certainly don't want to abuse it but certainly need it given some of the challenges of emissions reductions and from a CFTC perspective it's you know fairly easy to identify or to consider that these certificates or these offsets are in fact commodities and what i've been hearing and i'm sure you've been hearing the same thing is there's a lot of challenges and questions around the integrity of some of the registries and not all certainly I know there's a lot out there but it's not unlike the disclosure conversation that started many years ago within TCFD the task force we're seeing the same thing within the VCM space and I know you know there's obviously a task force on scaling voluntary carbon markets as well but it's this transition from a market-based solution and hitting an inflection point where you can have the official sector step in where there's structure some clarity and, I think, a path to scaling the market that it's important that you have the intersection between the official sector and the private sector. So from a CFTC perspective, and it's a good question about what our authority is, it kind of makes me think about crypto, and I think I'm going to use crypto as an example to articulate the authority we have. I mentioned we brought 50 enforcement cases in the crypto space and many of them have been in the the cash crypto space but we don't have jurisdiction over cash markets folks should you know know that and appreciate that we're a derivatives regulator but congress has provided the cftc with cash market authority where there's fraud and manipulation and this fraud and manipulation authority has become our jurisdictional lens or hook whatever term you want to use into the crypto space because of, naturally, the relationship between listed futures and listed derivatives and the cash market. And if you have mispricing or issues that are being driven by fraud or manipulation, it's naturally going to have an effect on our markets. That's at least part of the reason. So here we are with the the VCM market, a lot of issues. And, and my team has been engaging with the registries, with exchanges, with corporates, and just seeing what they're seeing, trying to learn from them and see what role, if any, we can play. Consensus seems to come around the credibility issues and having some official sector participation so that we could essentially lift up the market, enable it to scale at a greater clip because you have that certainty, right? And it's not, again, unlike the crypto space where if you have that regulatory certainty, it's just going to open the institutional flows which help support market development obviously access to products and exposure which has multiple benefits so we are currently thinking and i've asked the the enforcement director to start thinking about what we can do within this space because as you point out there are several listed futures contracts related to carbon offsets that you know benchmark or at least reference individual registries so we're looking into this one thing i would point out and for the audience to know is so many of our enforcement actions are driven by tips, by information from the market. We have a very talented enforcement team across four offices, but we do have limited resources. And our ability to go out into the market and surveil is not as as certainly large or wide as I'd like it to be. So we naturally have to rely on tips from market participants and from the public to help us sort of snuff out fraud or manipulation or any violations of the Commodity Exchange Act. So I don't view this as a situation that should differ very much to the extent that folks are seeing things in the marketplace that they might view as a violation of our law. We certainly are thinking about this issue and want to utilize this authority we have, albeit limited, so that we can support the scaling and the development of these markets because they're just so critical to the larger climate conversation.
1: Well, it's great to hear that uh, you guys are focused on it. I think that's news breaking right there. We don't break a lot of news on the podcast, but I don't think I've seen a statement from you or from your enforcement head that says the Fraud Manipulation Authority holds for these. Greenwashing is fraud. So good luck. Happy hunting. Um, I hope you are able to stop it and uh, make sure that this market is free from it because it, it would terrorize this market. It would wreck the market and it would undermine market confidence, it would undermine environmental improvement, and it would certainly hamper the development of the futures and other environmental products. So, best of luck on that front. Thanks. Now, I'd like to turn to another topic, one of your other key initiatives in the regulatory space, and that's reporting. The uh, CFTC has announced that it will delay implementation of s- certain amendments in its swap data reporting rules until December 5th uh, in order to give the market some better time to implement these new common data elements that you've been working to align with other jurisdictions. I think that's an appropriate relief and I'd like to thank you for that change. It will give us the necessary time to to get that in order. However, this is a first step in a multi-phase uh, revision process and other changes that are in the pipeline for 2023 and beyond, including the incorporation of unique product identifiers into the CFTC rules and developing the ISO 20022 standard messaging schema. Can you tell us how those additional amendments will be involved and when will this all roll out? It's important just for market clarity as we build these things out, how we put these in order. Good question, Scott. And I I would just say for the listeners, you know, CFTC
2: staff is working super hard to prepare for the implementation of the UPI and the ISO 2022 for Q4 of 2023. In addition, we're certainly coordinating with other authorities, both domestically and internationally, market participants, including ISDA, other organizations, to complete the development of the UPI standard. And we're also overseeing the development and implementation efforts that are currently being undertaken by the Derivative Service Bureau, which is an entity designated by the Financial Stability Board to issue the UPIs, and working to harmonize the implementation of the UPI standard across the FSP jurisdictions. And going back and thinking about the data rulemaking in 2020, the Division of Data has been working extremely hard with our swap data repositories to finalize the STR guidebooks and fine-tune the technical specs that really we've been getting a lot of feedback from the industry, which has been helpful for us. Because as you know, this is just a collective effort. We benefit from hearing from you so that we know how we can make this as seamless for the industry to aggregate and submit this data to us, which ultimately allows us to do our job better. So a lot going on, all very challenging, probably slower than we'd all like, but it's extremely important, I think, from both perspectives, private and official sector, to get this right, to create those efficiencies, lower costs, and ultimately allow us to do our job from a market oversight perspective.
1: Well, that's great. I mean, When we rolled this out years ago, there were some challenges. I might have made a few comments about it from my position. But now we have the opportunity to kind of clean things up. And you mentioned standards. We think standards are super important as that foundation. We think technology layered on that will play an important role in implementing the reporting rules. For example, the modeling and amended rules into human readable and machine executable open source code could eliminate inconsistencies in how these rules are, are implemented and interpreted across the industry. You know, our goal would be to create greater efficiency and, and cost, as you mentioned, but to really help use software as a solution across all the regulatory regimes. There's like 22 global regulators all demanding information from the market. Not all of it is all that different. It's all very common information, just the form and format are slightly different. So when we report it and you review it, making sure that everybody gets what they need, can leverage technology as appropriate, we think that would be a, a wonderful outcome. How effective will the commission be in, in utilizing technology to, to support all those objectives? This is probably
2: one of the things I'm most excited about. And I know my predecessors have been talking about technology and driving the CFTC into really a different age. I give credit to them. We've had a lot of accomplishments along the way, especially in the past few years. But I feel like we're also on the cusp of a lot more, not unlike The industry, we are at the CFTC migrating to the cloud. That takes time, but we're moving towards it and we can certainly see efficiencies there, both from a regulatory standpoint, a data submission standpoint, and then a market oversight standpoint. I've asked our division of data director to really just do what we can to transform the agency's analytical toolkit to leverage this cloud architecture and think about how we can implement artificial intelligence, machine learning, and data analytics. It is not an uncommon theme when I talk to my colleagues across the U.S. government or even internationally that we at the CFTC have such a rich data set, right, across the commodity complex, obviously derivatives being such a lead indicator for markets. So people and regulators and policymakers are constantly and frequently asking us to help them think about markets and market resiliency. So if we can build the tools within the CFTC, leveraging the best and latest technology, leveraging cloud technology, and then implementing layering on these AI techniques, the machine learning techniques, I just think the huge possibilities for the CFTC that would benefit market participants, but also, and more importantly, from a Market oversight from a surveillance, from an enforcement perspective, would be transformative for the agency. So these things take time. I'm almost antsy about them because I want to move them as quickly as possible, but we have to be cautious and slow and get it right because naturally with the new technology comes operational risks and other risks that the agency would not otherwise have. But ultimately, as we debate technology in so many elements and parts of our market, including earlier parts of the conversation here, we need to push forward, right? We need to push forward, but we have to be cautious and careful. And and if we do get it right, I think the benefits certainly outweigh the risks
1: that we might face. Now let's turn to benchmarks. Uh, CFTC has been instrumental in driving forward SOFR volumes as part of its SOFR First initiative last year. In addition, U.S. regulators have adopted a no new LIBOR policy since the turn of this year. Are you satisfied with the progress that has been made in the transition from U.S. dollar LIBOR? And what were your priorities in the 15 months or so until U.S. LIBOR completely stops being published in June of 2023? I do
2: want to give credit to ISDA first before we kind of pivot to some of the things that I've been doing since 2018. And even, Scott, you, I think you and I had a conversation back in my office and I had just started as a commissioner, and we were talking about issues that you were thinking about and your members were thinking about, and LIBOR was top of mind, which in many respects kind of pushed me towards, how do we address this? How can I take a leadership role on it? And ultimately, we landed with an MRAC. We had a great public meeting, I think, in the spring or like early summer of 2018. Then we had all the right players there, and we kicked off that conversation, which led to the forming of the benchmark reform subcommittee and shout out and a thanks to Tom Weff who chaired that committee continues to chair it. And in addition to his responsibilities as chair of the arc to answer your question, I'm very pleased, very satisfied. I think there was a lot of uncertainty over the past couple years, whether or not we would get to where we needed to at the end of 2021, knowing that the hard stop was being pretty, firmly pushed on down from the official sector most notably from the uk and to think about what we've accomplished in that short of time and how we've collectively come together across markets the primary markets obviously the derivatives markets playing a huge role in that as well has been remarkable and i think it's just a signal and a sign that things can be accomplished if we put our minds to it and we know that we can't mess around with extensions or, or kicking cans down the road i would say for me personally among the efforts that have all been very rewarding. Looking back to summer of 2021, we kicked off the SOFR First initiative within the MRAC subcommittee. And that was a critical time because there was so much uncertainty in the interdealer market and not having that shift away from LIBOR to SOFR. And there was just uncertainty. I had so many phone calls among folks in the interdealer space, like, how is this going to work? Is this a regulatory requirement? If I don't do this, am I going to get an enforcement action? All these questions, naturally, that you would view as critically important from a market participant standpoint. But it was a very smooth transition. I'll say that. There were certainly bumps on the road, but when you think about what we were trying to accomplish and what we did accomplish, and the statistics speak for themselves, because it was essentially like a four-part transition starting in July and then September among different Asset classes within the interdealer space, whether it was FX or rates or credit. And everything just moved really quickly, and the numbers just shifted on a dime over the course of several weeks. So we just saw a lot of really, really great participation from the market and a shift that I think really was a huge force to making the end of 2021 a successful transition. Obviously, so many other components to this. We recently passed legislation in the U.S. Congress for legacy swaps. Huge accomplishment there. But just another testament to everyone playing their part, contributing and getting this done. We still have the exchange-traded derivatives as an issue that we're monitoring and keeping an eye on as, as we get into, obviously, the latter parts of 2022. And then ultimately, as we think about June of 2023. So we understand that transition is much more difficult and a challenge to get folks off those products, but we'll continue to monitor it. Hopefully, it will happen organically and nothing will need to necessarily come down from the official sector. But if necessary, we'll take whatever action is necessary to make that transition as smooth as possible and get to where we need to be by mid-year
1: 2023. Now, before I'd like to finish, I'd want to touch on the war in Ukraine and the implementation of sanctions against Russia. This is just a horrific war and the financial sanctions are meaningful, I think, in response to what is just an atrocious tragedy. The situation has led to volatility in the markets, particularly in the energy sector. How closely is the CFTC monitoring this issue and, and what are market participants saying to you about it? I think it's important, and, you know, Scott,
2: I echo your sentiment about what's going on. We're obviously, on a personal level, keeping an eye on it, and and so unfortunate, sad, and hopefully an end is near. This was not a surprise. We were obviously hoping that it would not happen, but for several months, from a regulator standpoint, from a U.S. government standpoint, we had to anticipate this as a possible scenario. And with that came preparation, I think, both from a market resiliency standpoint, but also, as you pointed out, from a sanctions standpoint. So I had a number of conversations on a fairly frequent basis with my colleagues within the U.S. government, led mostly by Treasury, to prepare for this scenario. And I think the first few orders of action were around, obviously, potential cyber risks and what we needed to do to communicate with market participants to up their game and build resiliency to anticipate and prepare for cyber attacks. And the other element, as you point out, was the sanctions and and making sure that as we monitored our markets, had conversations with market participants, could identify potential issues that might arise if sanctions were levied by the treasury department. And as we got closer to the invasion and that came to be a reality, I feel like we were as prepared as we needed to be and as, as we prepared as we could be. So by and large, we had made observations about who was in our market, what we needed to do. And you know, naturally, from that standpoint, I think things went relatively smoothly and credit to treasury, of course. But also our market participants, they were very transparent. We shared information to the extent we could and we made sure that we were collectively prepared for this possibility. From a market standpoint, in many respects the CFTC and the markets we regulate are at the center of this crisis we've seen obviously huge spikes in the energy complex natural gas and wti obviously we've seen massive spikes in in the ttf natural gas contract over in europe and then the agricultural complex most notably wheat given ukraine's position as a massive and major wheat producer as well as russia and then the metals complex as well so I would say from a market resiliency standpoint, i use that phrase a lot for this conversation, but it's important. I've thought a lot about 2020 and the, the systemic shock that markets went through at the onset of the pandemic, particularly in the US in March and April. And to see some charts that we have at the CFTC and see the spikes in margin because of that unexpected shock that we experienced in that two to six week period a lot of that margin and collateral had stayed in the system. And I think it was in in part because of margin calculations and margin period of risk, but also because it's just a heightened level of scrutiny given the uncertainties around the pandemic and, and market participants wanting to be a bit more cautious about market volatility. So as we got closer to the invasion, I do feel like that collateral created a nice buffer for the market shock that we saw. Again, more of an expected and shock to the market, given the fact that we, we anticipated this as a scenario, coupled with the fact that I think CCPs and other market participants were preparing for it. What does that mean? That's opening lines of credit, creating more liquidity where they could, and just preparing for this scenario. So the markets are certainly under stress. I don't want to misguide listeners here. I said this recently that we are on heightened alert at the CFTC. Because of the invasion and the, the potential repercussions for markets, and we continue to be, continue to talk with market participants and hear what they're seeing in, in the markets and what they're seeing and talking to with their clients, and we'll continue to do so until well the war ends as soon as
1: possible. I'd like to finish the podcast by finding more about our guests at a personal level. Uh, you've had a varied career. Before joining the CFTC, you worked as senior counsel to Senator Debbie Stabenow, At the time when Dodd-Frank was being implemented, you also had stints practicing law in New York City, working for the New Jersey Bureau of Securities, and even spending time as an equities trader. Was all of this planned? Question one. And was regulation and policy always the aim for young Russ Benham? Well, uh, what's the
2: saying? Uh, Man makes plans and God laughs. So (laughs) I definitely was not planning this. That's for sure. I don't want to give credit to myself where there certainly shouldn't be any. But now, I've said this a lot to folks who have asked me for advice, or as I've thought about my career 20 years on, obviously, I feel very lucky and privileged to be in the position I'm in now, loved my responsibilities and my job working for Senator Stabenow and just getting that exposure to policy and in the intersection with financial markets. But something I, I do think about, to go to your point about, was this planned I always thought even after the first few jobs, I was on a trading desk right out of college and then went to law school and then as you pointed out, a few jobs in the legal space. I always wanted to make sure that there was a common thread or a common theme with every job I took. So that's not to say that I wasn't willing and always excited about taking on a new challenge and having a new experience and understanding the benefits of a new experience and how it would broaden my horizon and give me a different perspective about any number of things, life and work and responsibilities as an adult. But to make sure that I anchored myself in some common thread, right? As I moved on in my professional career and that sort of resume was built and that arc moved forward, that I could say that each job led for some logical reason to the next one and that I could use the experience from the prior job to help me do the new job or the new responsibility better. And and as I look back now on 20 some odd years and looking forward to 20 more years and what's next, I think I'll continue to do that. And I think that's a pretty good way to approach things. Cause I think it gives you a bit of flexibility to pivot and, and to do new things and to have new experiences, but also not to be completely <laughs> moving around without some sense of direction. Right. Because When I look back to the trading desk and observing markets and seeing how monetary policy or technology or geopolitics affects markets, and then thinking about markets from a legal perspective and and dealing with clients who have to comply in a very heavily, heavily regulated space, and then having, again, the privilege to work in the U.S. Senate and and seeing implementation of a major overhaul – and then now in this awesome position as chairman and having that responsibility, dealing with geopolitical crisis, technology, innovation, and the constituency that competes, competes together and against each other to make markets more efficient, to make them more competitive, and to make them serve their purpose for for end users and other, other market participants. So maybe that's the plan, but it wasn't necessarily pre-prescribed. But I feel pretty lucky to, to be where I am right now and feel like I got Some things right,
1: worked hard, kept my head down, and obviously got a little bit of luck. Terrific. Thank you. Been a terrific guest. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you, Scott. And we'll speak later.
0: Thank you. All right. A lot to pick over there. But given time constraints, let me focus on crypto the chairman set out some of the areas the CFTC is looking at, namely consumer and investor protection and potential systemic risk. One thing we didn't talk about was the legal framework for crypto derivatives. Now, Scott, you've talked about ISDA's work in this space on this podcast before, but can you give us a bit of an update on that?
1: Sure. I've talked about ISDA's Digital Assets Legal Working Group, which includes representatives Right across the market, including the crypto space, i have also talked about the white paper we published in December, which explores the key issues that need to be addressed in the contractual standards for OTC crypto derivatives. We're now looking closely at how the specific characteristics of crypto assets should be addressed in contractual standards and how those standards should be integrated within the existing ISDA documentation architecture, particularly the ISDA master agreement. Our priority is to develop standard terms for products that are already traded, such as cash-settled forwards and options that reference Bitcoin or Ether. We'll then seek to expand these definitions to additional product types, such as physically settled trades on digital assets and depending on member demand, of course. The work is progressing quickly, and we'd encourage any ISDA member interested in joining the conversation to get in touch by emailing isdalegal at isda.org.
0: Fantastic. Now that was a really interesting conversation and I'm pleased to say that Chairman Benham will be giving keynote remarks in person at the fast-approaching Isda AGM in Madrid on May 10th to 12th. It should be a great couple of days in the sunshine so we really hope to see you all there. Make sure you book your place at agm.isda.org. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening to The Swap. Keep in touch with ISDA via our website www.isda.org and our social media channels. See you next time.